Hello, everybody. It's good to see you. I'm glad that you're here. I'm happy to be with you this morning. So uh, my name is Stetson, and I wanted to share something personal with you today. And uh, that is, I am secure enough in my own masculinity that I can openly admit that I enjoy the occasional romantic movie. Uh, And in my small amount of experience in this genre, I have learned that there are a collection of movies based off of a certain author's books that are not worth the pain and the heartbreak for me. And you may have already guessed it, but the author goes by the name of Nicholas Sparks. Now, yeah, and so his movies have a hallmark, and his books do too, and that is towards the end of the story, something usually terribly tragic happens, and it's to the last character in the story that you would ever want this to happen to. And he tries to tie it up with the nicety of like, it is better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. But his stories prove that that is not true at all. And especially for his characters, it would be better if they never fell in love because they just end up getting hurt so badly. And out of all these stories, the one that sticks out in my mind is the most notorious is the movie Knights in Rodanth. Has anyone ever seen that movie before? Well, I'm going to ruin it for you. And I don't feel bad about that. I'm going to sleep well tonight knowing that I have done my duty as your friend to give you every reason not to go and see this movie. Okay, so here we go. Uh, The story starts off and the main character is a woman named Adrian. Now, we learn quickly that Adrian, uh, her husband has left her for another woman. So he's kind of a scumbag. We don't like him, but we like Adrian. And Adrian is healing from this former relationship. And her best friend asks her if she will go and take care of her friend's bed and breakfast for her for a week or so. And she agrees. So she goes to this bed and breakfast. And during the time that she is caring and overseeing the bed and breakfast, there is only one guest. And it is a man named Paul. And right away, we see where this is going. And it does. Paul is perfect for Adrian. Like, he's working through things, and she's working through things, and they're helping each other work through things, and they're being supportive, and they have so much in common, and they begin to fall for one another. And it just creates those warm, fuzzy feelings inside. And But the weather report says that a hurricane or something like that is coming through. So Paul agrees to stay and board up the B&B with Adrian and weather the storm together, which they do. And in the middle of the hurricane, they fall in love because that's what happens in hurricanes, I guess. I've lived in Colorado my whole life, so I don't know. And so they survive the hurricane, no thanks to Nicholas Sparks. And uh, when they realize that like, they really have something going on here, they are committed to each other. And 
as she's been learning about Paul, she learned that Paul has a son in South America. And Paul's son is a doctor. Paul's a doctor. And they have this big falling out over something. And she's encouraging Paul to go to South America and reunite with his son and restore this relationship that's been broken. And so he does. And while he's in South America, he and Adrian, they start writing love letters back and forth to each other. And we catch glimpses of these, and they're wonderful. And the romance is just swelling. And it's coming to this breaking point where it's like, just get together already. What are you doing in South America? Like, you and your son are good again now. So it's time for you to come back. So he buys a plane ticket to come back home and begin his life with Adrian. So Adrian's really excited about this. She puts on a nice dress. She lights candles and she cooks the first meal that they ever ate together when they met at the B&B. And Paul never arrives. And she waits and she calls the airline and the airline says that the flight made it safely. Again, no thanks to Nicholas Sparks. And, uh, and she continues to wait. And night falls, and the morning comes, and there's a knock on the door. And so she rushes down quickly and opens the door. And standing on the front step is Paul's son. No! Like, my wife Allie and I are watching this, and we're like, he did it again! Nicholas! And Paul's son is there, standing there with a box. And we're like, is Paul in the box? And, and, and Paul's son explains to Adrian that there was a storm in South America. And Paul went back into the village to recover some medical supplies. And a mudslide came through and destroyed the village and killed Paul. And we're thinking, oh, no. And if that wasn't bad enough, Paul's son hands him this box. And we watch her open the box. And in it are all the letters that she has sent him. And on top is a letter that he had never sent to her. And in this letter, he expresses to her how much he loves her and how excited he is to spend the rest of his life with her. But that's not going to happen because he's dead now. And if that wasn't hard enough, for the next 15 minutes, the movie forces you to watch Adrian fall into this deep depression, <laughs> grieving. And Allie and I are grieving with her. We are just so distraught about the direction that this movie is going. And when Adrian, she gets to the place where she can pull herself back up on her feet again, she goes back to the beach that this B&B &B was at, and she says goodbye, and that's the end of the movie. I kid you not, Allie and I were so mad about this, we took the disc out of the DVD player, we ceremoniously snapped it in half, and we threw it in the trash can. I'm not joking. I asked Allie, do you remember the movie Knights in Rodance? She said, yeah, didn't we snap it in half and throw it? It's like, yes, and it deserved it. So the reason why I share all of this with you isn't to just save you from a terrible movie night. Uh, but it's because when I was reading Luke's account of the Last Supper with Jesus and the disciples, it reads a lot like a Nicholas Sparks plot line. 
Because last week, Pastor Alan, he was sharing with us how in the beginning of the Last Supper, Jesus is explaining to his disciples that the new covenant, the thing that Israel has been waiting for for 600 years since it was first prophesied, this new covenant that was supposed to free Israel is here now, and it's him. He is the new covenant. But then he tells the disciples that he is about to die. And from there, the Last Supper just takes a tragic turn because Jesus says this. And if you would like to turn with me, we're going to be reading Luke chapter 22, and we're going to start in verse 21. So verse 21 through 30 of Luke 22 says this. But behold, this is Jesus speaking. The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus explains to the disciples that he is going to die, and this is because one of their own is going to betray him. So they begin to argue about who the traitor is, but then it turns into an argument about who's the greatest disciple. Now, we don't know how this happened, but I could warn a guess. I could see something happening like the disciples are arguing about who's going to betray Jesus, and then they notice that John is being really quiet. And suspiciously, they ask John, John, why are you being so quiet? And John says, well, I'm not going to be the one. I'm more loyal than all of you here. And Matthew says, oh, really? And then they start to argue about who's the greatest. But in the middle of this, Jesus interrupts them, and he scolds them. This is not nice, gentle teaching Jesus. This is serious, stern Jesus. He says, don't you know that the people who argue about these things are called benefactors? And this catches their attention. Because for the past few hundred years, the leaders of the empires that have conquered Israel would often adopt the Greek word of benefactor as their very own name. So in turn, Jesus is saying, do you hear who you sound like right now? You sound like the Caesars, the ones who have oppressed you for generations. But I have called you to something better than this. Have you learned nothing from my example? The greatest are the ones who serve, who humble themselves like children. But the ones who argue like you are arguing are the least of these. Jesus scolds them because there is no time left. He is about to die. 
He says, I assign to you a kingdom, my kingdom. And that phrase, I assign to you, is the very phrase that they would use in last will and testaments. So Jesus is saying, I am about to die, and your inheritance is to carry on my ministry and judge God's people during the end times. But it is clear that you are not ready or worthy for this right now. The disciples got swept up in their pride, arguing about who's the worst and who's the best. And and I can relate to this. I cannot tell you how many times I get swept up in pride. And I hate to admit this, but I start to compare myself to other believers. I, I think, yeah, I'm working on my own stuff, but at least I'm not going through what that person is going through. So I'm okay. Or I think, wow, I'm a really good Christian. Look at the things that God and I have been doing together this week compared to those people over there. Maybe when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to make a little bit of room for a 13th throne, and I'll get to sit up there with the rest of the disciples and judge. I hate it when I catch myself doing this. It truly sickens me. I hate it when I catch myself doing this. But the context in which the disciples are doing this seems worse to me because Jesus just told them he was about to die and they're having these petty arguments. Like picture a single mother sitting down to dinner with her 12 sons and her sons are grown and she has loved and she has raised them incredibly well. And she sits down and she says, I've been looking forward to having this this meal with you. Sons, you know that I love you. You know that I will always love you and I will always be with you. But I have some terrible news. I visited the doctor and I have less than a week left to live. Imagine the look on her face if the sons were to stand up and begin arguing about who deserves the greater share of the inheritance because they are the better son. And imagine the shame that they should feel if she was to stand up and say, that's enough. I cannot believe what I'm witnessing right now. I've raised you better than this. I'm not even dead yet, and you're arguing about who gets the greater share of the inheritance. Well, you're getting equal shares, but that's besides the point because I'm not sure you even deserve it anymore. I cannot imagine that that is the way that she would want that meal to go. And I am certain that this is not the reaction that Jesus would have wanted from his disciples. And then he turns to Peter, and he says this, Verses 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Jesus talks to Peter and he says, look, things are about to get really heavy. I'm about to die and Satan is going to attempt to use this opportunity to destroy the faith that you have. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that you might make it out of this with your faith intact. 
And Peter says, Jesus, I will die with you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. In the next 12 hours, you are going to deny that you ever even knew who I was. Jesus calls Peter out as an example in front of all the disciples. And he does this in such a direct way. He does something very intentional here. He calls Peter by the name of Simon. See, Peter's name used to be Simon until Jesus gave him the name of Peter. So before they sat down to this meal, a while back, this is when the disciples, they had just started following Jesus and they had seen Jesus perform a few miracles and Jesus asked them, and you're, if you were to take a guess, who would you say that I was? And a few of the disciples gave some answers and some of them were just playing it kind of safe. And he turns to Simon and he says, Simon, who do you say I am? And Simon says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, bless you, Simon. Your name is now Peter, which means rock. And he says, you are the rock on which I will build my church. So when Jesus calls Peter, Simon, Peter and the rest of the disciples, they immediately think back to the last time that Jesus called him by this name. And when they hear Jesus say, Peter, you are going to deny me, they know that he is saying, you who were the first to admit who I was is going to be the first to deny that you ever even knew me. I'm not a very good chess player. I'm too spontaneous. If you've ever seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, I play chess like the last scene in that movie. I just come out guns blazing. I know it's over before it even starts, so it might as well be exciting, and it's over really quickly. I'm not sure if I've ever won a game of chess. But for as little as I know about chess, I do know that the most important piece on the board is the queen. The queen is the most maneuverable, and it's the most powerful piece on the board. Now, something that I learned is in professional games of chess, it is not uncommon for an opponent to forfeit the game before the game is officially over, before checkmate has been reached. And the reason for this is, is if you are playing a match and you realize halfway through the game that you have no chance of winning this game, it would be rude to continue playing. It's a waste of your opponent's time. It would be insulting, it would be disrespectful. Now, professionals, when they play games of chess, it would not be surprising if someone, if they lost the queen in the first few moves of the game, they would probably forfeit because they know they have no chance of winning without the queen piece. Now, if all the disciples were chess pieces on a board, if anyone was the queen, it would have to be Peter. Peter was the very first disciple. Peter walked on water with Jesus. Peter was in Jesus' inner circle. Peter was the first to admit that Jesus was Christ. And Peter was called the rock that my church will be built on by Jesus. But what Jesus does in front of all the disciples in this moment, is he says, in the first few moves, the queen piece is going down. The rock that the church will be built on is going to crumble three times over under the pressure of what's about to happen. Can you imagine how disheartening this must have been for the disciples? Let alone Peter. The tone of the night has officially taken a dark 
turn. But then comes the most heartbreaking moment of the entire thing. The last few verses we're going to look at. Verses 35 through 38. Jesus says this. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Jesus reminds the disciples of how much better their lives have been since they started following Jesus compared to their old way of life. And then Jesus tells them to go back to their old way of life. When the disciples first started following Jesus and from that point on, they didn't need money or food or provisions or protection. All of that was provided for them when they were with Jesus. But he's leaving now. So they're on their own again. And the saddest part about this is how easy it is for the disciples to just slip back into their old way of life. When Jesus tells them to do this, they don't argue. They don't ask why. All they say is, look, here's a couple swords. And I picture a sad look on Jesus' face as he says, that'll be enough. This is so disturbing to me, partly because of how familiar it is. It is really easy for us to slip into an old way of life, even when we found a better one. Just a couple weeks ago, I went on this retreat uh, up in the mountains overnight. And on this retreat, the focus was for us to learn how to center ourselves on God so that we are better able to love and care for the people in our lives. And I learned a lot, and I feel like I made a lot of personal breakthroughs on this retreat. But I got home and hardly an hour went by before I started acting so selfishly again towards my wife who was watching our two-month-old son by herself while I got to go on this great retreat overnight. How's that for a breakthrough? So it is easy for us to slip into old ways of lives even when we've experienced a new and a better one. And the disciples, they had spent their entire lives taking care of themselves and surviving on their own. And when Jesus came along, all that changed. But as soon as Jesus directed them back to that, it was so easy for them to relapse into that. What was confusing to me when I read this is why would Jesus be the one to direct them into the old way of life when they've experienced a life with Jesus that was far better? Like I picture uh, a circle of people in an AA meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous, and the leader who hosts the group stands up and he says, think about how far you've come the past three years. Think about the freedom that sobriety has given you. Think about how much more vibrant your lives are, how much more meaningful your relationships are. And then he says, well, I'm leaving now, so I can't lead this group anymore. So if you feel the need to go have a drink, I'm not going to stop you. Get your bag, get your money, get your swords. We're leaving. 
Jesus isn't instructing his disciples to sin, but why would he direct his disciples into an old way of life when the new life that they've experienced is so much better? This is disturbing to me because I feel like here Jesus is giving up. I feel like he's saying, well, it's over now. So there's nothing more that we can do. Everything in this dinner table is falling apart. Jesus is going to die. One of them is a traitor. The disciples are arguing about these petty things when their leader just said he was about to die. Peter is going to deny Jesus before the sun comes up. And Jesus just told his disciples, it's basically over now, so go back to your old way of life. What is happening? What's happening is Jesus is giving the disciples a realistic perspective of what life is going to be like when he's gone. Everything is going to fall apart. And as soon as Jesus is arrested, indeed, everything begins to fall apart. Peter denies Jesus three times, just like he said he would. Judas hangs himself. Jesus is led to his crucifixion. As far as we know, only one of the disciples has enough courage to attend Jesus' crucifixion. The rest, they go into hiding out of fear. They abandon him. Now, if Nicholas Sparks was the author of the gospel, it would probably end somewhere around right here, the most depressing moment. But thankfully, he's not. So I'm going to ruin another ending for you if you haven't heard it. Jesus dies, and he is gone. But then a few days later, he comes back. And this shows us why the Last Supper took the turn that it did. Because the disciples were never, ever meant to carry on Jesus's ministry on their own. Peter was never meant to be the rock that the church was built on, on his own. They were never meant to experience the way of life that Jesus taught them on their own. So Jesus came back. What the disciples realized quickly after Jesus died was that it is very hard for them to follow Jesus when they weren't actually following Jesus himself anymore. And the same is true for us too. It is very hard for us to follow Jesus when we aren't following Jesus. So Jesus came back so that we could do it together. When Jesus came back, he made it so that we would never have to be apart from him again. When we decide to put our trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, makes his home in us. And we have this deep, intimate, personal connection with Jesus. We never have to experience what the disciples did after Jesus died ever again. We never have to be apart from him. But we have to be really honest about something here. Even though Jesus came back, and even though he dwells in us, it is possible for us to attempt to follow Jesus without following Jesus. And it is really hard to follow Jesus when we aren't following Jesus. 
It is possible for us to spend years faithfully serving God in the church, listening to messages and to podcasts and applying to our life the things that we read in the Bible on a daily basis, but then to suddenly look up and realize we don't see him. We haven't seen him in a long time. We've been doing this all on our own. It's possible for us to strive on our own. When we strive on our own to have the perfect marriage, to stay sober, to be more generous, to love our neighbor, to beat an addiction, to end a terrible relationship, to save ourselves from marriage, to work on our bad language, to respect our parents, and we fall and we fail and we mess up and we're on the ground and we're angry and we're saying, I don't understand what's wrong here. I'm doing everything that Jesus asked me to do. Why isn't anything changing? But we never invited Jesus to do those things with us. A few weeks ago, Pastor KJ shared in his message that the Hebrew perspective of worship is very similar to the way that a flower follows the sun. It directs itself towards the sun. As the sun arcs across the sky, the, the face of the flower is always pointing towards it. It's following its path. But what would happen if a flower became so consumed and so focused on performing all the movements correctly, on following the direct path of the sun, that it got ahead of itself and it became out of sync. And it wasn't following the sun anymore, it was just following the path of the sun and doing everything that it feels like that it taught him to do. It would be missing out on the very thing that it needs to flourish and survive. Even though Jesus came back, and thank God he came back. And even though he dwells in us, it is possible for us to become so focused on performing the correct movements, on following his path, that we become out of sync and we forget to follow Jesus himself in this. It is so hard to follow Jesus when we aren't following Jesus. We miss out on the source of everything that we need to flourish and survive when we become out of sync like that. So how do we tell if we're just following Jesus' path or if we're following Jesus himself? Well, that's going to look really different for every one of us. How do we know if we are intentionally turning our heart towards him? Again, that's going to look really different for every one of us. But what we can do is ask a few questions that help us begin to think through these things. And we can start to answer this question for ourselves. Not for ourselves, but with Jesus. And that's what I really want to challenge you with, with these questions that I'm about to give you. Before you sit down and talk to another person about these things, Make sure you've taken a chance to sit down and talk to Jesus about these things and see what he has to say about them. Even when we start entering into worship, just feel the freedom if you want to, to remain seated and just be silent and think and pray. 
So close your eyes with me and invite God into this moment. Invite him to just engage with you through these questions. Have you felt lately like your pursuit of following Christ has left you empty and depleted? Is it possible that you've been attempting to follow Christ on your own? Is there an area in your life that you've been working so hard to change and you need to invite Jesus to come and work on those things with you? When was the last time you paused to intentionally turn your heart towards Jesus? When was the last time that you stopped to ask Jesus himself what he would like you to do? If it's been a while, there is no better time than right now.